While you're finding your seat, I'll just introduce myself to you. My name is Kyle Jones, one of the pastors here. Just want to say thank you so much for being with us uh, today. Uh, one quick kind of announcement um, that's in the worship guide. I just want to draw your attention to, uh, but I wanted to do this kind of personally because it's going to be at Patricia and I's house. Patricia and I are going to host uh, the college group. And so that's really the group plus any college students in here today uh, who are interested in just coming over for dinner and a game night and just kind of hanging out. We're going to do that Thursday night from six to nine. And so uh, again, all college students, we'd love to have you come. I did not, because I'm not real smart sometimes, put my address in the worship guide. So uh, if you have a pen and you want to write that down, I'll tell you, uh, and then we'll broadcast it on the podcast for everyone to know also, and uh, they'll, be, they'll be safe. So uh, it's 2422 Bel Air Drive. I am the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and none of the college kids know what that is. So <laughs> anyway, um, I want one with like a Santa Claus on it to put out in my front yard every year at Christmas. So if somebody can help me make that happen, that'd be good. Uh, anyway, 2422 Bel Air Drive, Thursday night, 6 o'clock. We're going to do uh, soups and some other stuff and games and hang out, have a big time. All right? There's your invite. Y'all come see us. It'll be a blast. All right. Um, last week, we looked at um, Peter's ministry to the Gentiles. Peter has this dream, and uh, God shows him that, that the gospel is now going to go to all people, that there are no unclean people. And so he goes to this Gentile family, Cornelius and his family, and he uh, ministers to them, uh, witnesses to them, tells them the gospel. They receive uh, the Lord and are saved and uh, it opens up this new door, if you will, for ministry to go to the ends of the earth. And so this week, what we get to look at is we're uh, Dr. Luke, right? Dr. Luke, is he's picking back up kind of where he leaves off. Like he just breaks in the story and it's kind of a little, a little side story. It's like watching a TV show where you might get an episode that's just a total kind of not off the wall. It's, it, it, it applies to the big picture, but it's just a side story, right? He definitely breaks narrative and... and uh, now he's going to jump back into it. He's actually picking back up where the church was scattered, right? So a lot's happened since the church was scattered that we've seen, uh, but we're going to see some more that the church has been scattered. Um, and this is going to result in a church being formed among Gentiles, which is an amazing work. And so uh, as we get ready to look at that, you can turn to Acts chapter 11 as well, where we'll be this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to pray that the Lord would use uh, this word uh, to, to speak to us today, that He would be with us. Heavenly Father, uh, just a joy, Father, to preach Your Word. It's a joy to be here gathered with my brothers and sisters. And uh, Lord, we pray now that You would be glorified, that Your uh, name would be honored as, as we look at Your Word and read Your Word. Father, I pray that our hearts and minds would be uh, receptive. Lord, help us to be uh, challenged in the ways that we need to be challenged. Help us to be uh, taught in some areas where we might need to be taught. Help us to be reproved and corrected where reproof and correction is needed. And Father, ultimately we pray that you would use your word uh, to train us in all godliness. Father, that you would help us to be more like your son Jesus. Uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, I want to read something to you from a, uh, 
a commentary that I've been using as we go through this. It's, the, it's called the Gospel-Centered Commentary Series, and there's one on Acts. And this specific uh, book, is, or this commentary, is written by a guy named Tony Merida, who pastors a church out in North Carolina, I believe. Um, and this is, he's just given some overview of Antioch, and I thought it was really helpful, so I just wanted, I wanted to read it to you. Um, uh, that way you can kind of have some idea of why this is such a big deal when we start reading the text. All right, so Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world behind Rome and Alexandria. It boasted some 500,000 people. It bore the nickname the Queen of the East. It was cosmopolitan and commercial. It was the capital city of Syria, and it was also a base for the Roman military. Antioch was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea uh, on the uh, on the Orontes River in what is now southeast Turkey. The city served as a crossroads having major highways going to the north, the south, and the east. Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians all populated Antioch, making it remarkably diverse. Religiously, Antioch was, a pluralistic, and, was pluralistic and idolatrous. Some called Antioch the abode of the gods since several Greek deities were worshipped there, including Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, and some others. Within five miles of Antioch was the city of Daphne, which was known for its worship of Artemis, Apollos, and Astarte. Uh, cult prostitution was present in their worship. All of this makes Antioch a great place for a church. <laughs> John Stott notes no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. The church in Antioch, not the mother church in Jerusalem, changed the world. The Jerusalem church was wonderful and it should be appreciated for its uniqueness and power, but it had its challenges when it came to evangelizing non-Jews. Antioch, by contrast, was an international church. So we just want to ask the question, what makes the church at Antioch so powerful? It, one, it begins with people who understand their purpose. These are people who have been scattered into an area because of persecution, meaning they were already Christians. They were already believers. They came into an area with Christ on their mind and with the desire to teach, at least as you'll see, other Jews in the area about the Messiah. And so we'll look into this and we'll see something else, but it's that desire that these early believers had that the church also adopts. And it becomes a model, I think, for every local church. And so we're going to look through these things uh, today and just kind of see its mission, see how it operated, see how these people established the church. Um, but I think the overarching kind of theme of this, as you'll see at the top of your notes, is this, that the the mission of the local church is to engage and transform the world for the sake of Christ. The mission of the local church is to engage and transform the world. Now, I think the engaging and transforming happens locally, but as we'll see, that affects things globally. And so we'll see some of those things as, as we walk through this. But again, we're going to engage and transform the world for the sake of Christ. Uh, now, I think this happens through 
Uh, probably really two things, but if I could reword it, I might would do that. But, but I've got four listed, so we'll, we'll do four. It, it's a little more preacherly to have a lot of points anyway, so let's do that. Let's read verses 11, 19 through 21, and then I'll give you the first one. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the first one, I think, is evangelism. The first mark, if you will, of a local church and what it ought to be about is evangelizing, right? Telling others about who Jesus is, what He's done. I think that what we see here is a mentality where these people said, we're going to go into the culture and we're going to engage the culture. We're going to take Jesus to the people that we're now around. We see this as an opportunity that persecution has come. It's removed us from where we were, but this isn't going to hinder the mission. It's going to help the mission. We get now to speak to new people, people that have never heard the gospel before. And so there's this mentality that we go into um, the lives of those who are around us and preach the gospel. So believers have been scattered from Jerusalem into Phoenicia, which is really present-day Lebanon, and Cyprus, which is an island about 100 miles off the coast, and then Antioch, as we see. And then everywhere they went, they preached the good news. Now, most of them, as you read, spoke only to Jews. Now, that's not totally a biased thing, though it could be part of what their, their bias was. They may not have received word yet, about what had happened with Peter, right? They might still be thinking that this is just good news for the Jews only. But likely, what really was going on is that they would have had some pretty natural, this would have been pretty natural for them as most of their, their contacts in these places would have been other Jews, people whom they knew, maybe business partners or relatives, that sort of thing. But some of them, it says, from Cyprus and Cyrene, arrive in Antioch and preach the good news to the Hellenists, which here means Greeks or Gentiles. It, it was really a daring thing to do. It, Tim Keller called them maverick in their approach. He, he says that what they were doing was a bit, um, a, a bit off uh, kilter, I guess might be an okay word to use. It was a bit off from what the mission would have been, right? They would have been going rogue. And, and so they're maverick in their approach. They're daring, at least, in their approach. And, but these men aren't really concerned about a cultural barrier. They're not concerned about uh, these are Gentiles and we're Jews. We don't need to have anything to do with it. What they're concerned about is we know who the Savior is and we know that these are lost people who need to hear about the Savior. So they're not concerned about a cultural barrier, they're concerned for souls. They're concerned for people's lives. And I think it's an example for us that we could learn to be like our brothers and sisters at Antioch here. Learn how to live faithfully and sensibly and soberly and wisely and graciously and winsomely among the culture that we're around. To be able to speak to those who are far from God. We see that as they went, it says they proclaimed the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now this is interesting because mostly what we've read up until now is 
proclaiming the Messiah or the Savior. It's a very Jewish approach that uh, they would have Jews knew that we were waiting on a Messiah. So when they would announce Jesus, they would use the Old Testament to say, hey, here's the Messiah we've been waiting on. Here's how he perfectly fulfills all of the law and the prophets. Here's how he's the Christ. But, but here, these guys understood something. They understood the culture a little bit. They understood that, hey, these guys aren't talking on that level. And so they used the word, um, it's actually kyrios, I think is the best way to pronounce it. My, my Greek's not good at all. Uh, but it's the word Lord. And this word would have been common among Gentiles. I think this is really interesting. Maybe, maybe you won't, but I'm going to say it anyway. The, the term was used in mystery religions in reference to a divine God who could give salvation to people. Now, isn't that interesting? That even in a pagan world, even in this uh, place where there was no Jesus, there was no looking for a Messiah, there were messages within their religion saying there is a God, there is some sort of a God who will provide salvation to people. I think that's interesting. I, th I think it testifies to what Ecclesiastes 3, I think 10 says about how the Lord has put in the hearts of every man the sense of eternity. That, that every man has this idea that eternity is, is out there somewhere, right? That, 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 we, that it, life exists beyond here and now. And so these guys, these people, these Gentiles had this sense of kyrios, a, a savior, a, a, a lord, somebody who was going to come and save, and these believers were able to take the word that they knew about and say, Kyrios refers to the Savior, Jesus. And they were able to use that to evangelize the area there. I think it's important for us to note that, like, to be a good witness, right? To, to really understand how to teach the gospel well, we ought to understand the gospel well. Like we, we ought to be students of what we say we believe. We ought to know like what when we say the word gospel, what does that even mean? Like it, we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Well, what does that mean? It means that God looked into a world that was broken by sin, separated from Him, and saw fit to send His Son into that world to live perfectly. To die. An innocent man. The only innocent man, I might add, who's ever walked the face of the earth. The only one without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. And he dies, and he rises again on the third day so that anyone who believes in him can be saved. Have eternal life. And so I think when we understand that message, then we kind of get to understand the people that we work with, the people in our families, the friends, the parents on our children's ball teams, and the community that we're in, right? We start to understand, all right, here, here's the gospel message, but I don't want to just walk up to somebody, not that this is ineffective, it's probably effective at times, but I don't want to just walk up to someone with no idea how to present the gospel and just say, hey, have you heard the good news about Jesus? Right? That may work. But what might work better is to get to know the person, to understand what's going on in their life, and then to be able to say, hey, here's someone I need to introduce you to. Here's the way that Christ has transformed my life. Here's the way He's helped me walk with Him. And ultimately, He saved me from all my sins. 
Amen? Paul wrote it this way. This is, you know, we're seeing Paul as Saul still, but later on he writes that it was his earnest desire, really, to, to become all things to all men that he might win some. A meaning he would find a commonality, a common ground with people, something that he could use to speak to. Like Paul was able to, to witness to people and talk to people in ways that, uh, that, that you and I can learn to do. Right? He was just so interested in sharing the gospel, so passionate about getting the gospel out that he wanted to do whatever he could to speak to people. And so I think with this idea here, what we see with these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene is something that we can emulate or imitate. Sorry. Um, that one of the other things that I think is important to notice about these men is though their efforts have like this eternal effect on the church, we know very little about them. And I find this incredibly encouraging. Like, I, I don't know their names. I don't know if they had families. I don't know their jobs. I, don't, I know where they came from. I might could make some general like, assumptions about that, what kind of people they were. But outside of that, I don't know much about them. And I think the reason this is encouraging is that if you've ever wondered whether or not that you're mostly mundane, I'm not trying to be offensive, right? But your mostly mundane life could matter for the kingdom. If you've ever wondered if that's true, the answer is unequivocally yes. Your, your life does matter for the kingdom. It can matter for the kingdom. The Lord wants to use largely unknown mundane people like you and me. Do you believe that? He wants to use you. And what I see here is that these men were just simply being faithful followers of Jesus. Hey, we're in a new area. There's people all around who have never heard the good news of Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, we're gonna, we should shell up and like turn this house into a church and we'll just meet here with the Jews and we won't... We're not going to worry about them. What are you guys talking about? And they're like, no! We've got to take the good news of the Lord Jesus to these people. Like, they need to know about the Lord. I love that we see that in them. I love that they were just simply being faithful with where they were in their life. And I love it because you and I can do the exact same thing. We can be faithful followers of Jesus wherever we are in life. Married, unmarried, employed, unemployed, going through great affliction, or riding on the clouds, you and I can proclaim faithfully the name of Jesus in every situation that we're in. I also like that we see in verse 21 what really was the power behind the work, right? We see the Lord's sovereignty here. We see the... the these ordinary believers saw extraordinary results because the Lord's sovereign hand was with them, it says. It says, and the Lord's hand was with them. Like he, he blessed their witness, right? Like he, he blessed their efforts. They went and said, we're going to be faithful. And the Lord saw their faithfulness and says, I'm going to use it for my glory. Again, the gospel Centered commentary says this. It says, the Lord Jesus is the hero of the message. Right? We, we read that 
the good news about the Lord Jesus. So he's the, the hero of the message, but he's also the goal of the message. We read in verse 21 that they turn to the Lord. So the hero and the goal of the message is the Lord. And then it adds that he is also the source of power in the message, that the Lord's hand was with them. You and I go forth into the world proclaiming the good news about Jesus, knowing that we've been equipped with the hero of the message, and that the hero is going to bring about the results. He's the source of power. He's going to use the message to turn people's lives to Him. It's amazing. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go into the world and create followers for myself. Right? Like that, I'm not interested in followers for Kyle. I would, I would pity the people who say, hey, let's, let's really let's devote ourselves to following Kyle. Now, if you're going to say we're going to follow Kyle as he follows the Lord, I'm okay with that. But if we're going to follow Kyle because you think that I can do something for you, you're going to be so sad. <laughs> but they went and they said, here's the hero. Let's tell them about the Lord Jesus. They, they were obscure, right? We don't know their names. They didn't care about the recognition. They said, here's Jesus. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of John the Baptist. And what I think is chapter 3, verse 30, but I could be wrong in John. And he says that the Lord must increase and I must decrease. What a prayer for you and I to pray. The Lord, you increase, make us decrease. I think some people doubt whether or not the gospel is powerful. Like, I think in a lot of ways, we feel like we should add some like new things to the gospel to really make it appeal to people, right? Like, let's add some funky music here, and let's add kind of a laser light show and some, some smoke and mirrors, and let's really make the gospel like appeal to people. Even though we're not ever really going to mention the gospel, we just want to really be attractional and like appeal to people, right? We're, we're all really trying to like help the gospel out as if God needs our help. And I think there's something to be said about the simplicity of this. One, it's easily reproducible. I love that God didn't give us this method that like we've got to have PhDs to figure out. He just simply says, here's the gospel message. Believe it. You'll receive new life. And as you receive new life, I'll give you a new ministry, a new mission. You'll become my ambassadors into all the world. Simply repeating the message that led you to Jesus. That Christ is Lord and you are not. That Christ is Lord and nothing in this world is Lord. Nothing in this world is worthy of our devotion. And we get to tell the Lord this, right? We get, to, we get to respond to the Lord in this. We get to tell Him like nothing is more important than you are. Would you use me, use my mundane, meager life to proclaim you into all the world. And the Lord says, that's exactly the way I've designed it. I praise Him for it. I shared a quote earlier this week on Facebook. I think it's worth saying here, but Jared Wilson in his book, The Gospel Driven Church, says, let's rehitch our ministries to the supernatural power of God. I think all of our ears kind of perk up. I was like, all right, what's, what's the supernatural power of God? How are we going to hitch ourselves to it? 
says, let's recover prayer. Let's recover preaching the Word. And let's recover a, a centering on the good news of the finished work of Christ and everything that we do. This is the tried and true method of the church for all of its history. Simply praying and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. Trusting the Lord to use us in that endeavor. And he kind of issues a challenge. He said, let's see what happens as we do that. And I really like the last line because I think it's kind of true. He said, let's make Christianity weird again. <laughs> the second thing we see is discipleship. <laughs> discipleship. Let's look at verses 22 through 26. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So, Jerusalem hears of this work going on among the Gentiles. Jerusalem's already been re reported to by Peter at this point, right? So they, they send Barnabas, just go up there and let's just make sure that, that what's being reported is happening. Go, go verify the work. And so Barnabas kind of goes as like... Uh, as a person to, to help hold them accountable, right? There was no real leadership in the church. There were people proclaiming the good news, but he goes now to be a leader there in the church to provide some accountability, some leadership, to help them out, to grow them up. And rather than send someone who may be more concerned about making them like the Jews, like American missionaries are prone to do when we go into other countries, right? Let's put them in a suit. Let's give them a little building here. And let's take our picture with them and make them just look just like the American church. That when we go back home and show our pictures, everybody can clap. That's not missionary work. I'm not saying good things aren't happening, but that's not the essence of missionary work. Barnabas is sent as a missionary. He's sent to encourage them to help them apply the gospel within their own culture. That's what missionaries are supposed to do. To go train and equip and help. This is why I loved going to Brazil so much. We were training. We were helping. We were equipping to see the tears on all the students' faces when the time came to an end was, I just haven't felt my heart so full before. I'm not sure. Just so grateful that someone would come and train and equip and help them move forward in their mission for Christ. And so Barnabas encouraged them. He just says, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. In other words, keep doing a lot of what you're doing, right? This is great. He was an encourager because he was a man of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. A good disciple maker needs sound doctrine. This is true. Like you need to be able to teach what Jesus taught. What does He say? Go into the world and make disciples, teaching them all that I have taught you. So we need, to, we need sound doctrine. We need to be able to teach, but 
One of the things we need as disciple makers too is the ability to be an encourager. Like to look at someone and say, this is who the Lord is. I know this is where your life is. But if you'll trust Him, if you'll hold on to faith, I, I promise you the Lord's going to work this out for your good. It's to encourage people in their faith. It's to help them follow the Lord. Disciple makers should be known for stirring up others to faith and good works. Not stirring up division among the body. Not stirring up these uh, rants of, about different kind of things, right? I'm trying to be careful. <laughs> but an encourager, stirring up faith and good works to care for the person while trying to help them understand the facts, but to care for the person sitting in front of you. Now, what if you made it your daily aim in life to encourage a fellow believer. Just at some point in your day, you just said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a, like a tally just for my own accountability of like on Monday. My goal is to encourage one person in their faith today. What would that look like for you? How might that change your perspective about the people you're around? About your own life? I think you might see the ways that God would love to use your ordinary mundane life for His glory. That you've been uniquely wired, uniquely placed wherever you're at to bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. And you can trust Him for that. We see that Barnabas needed help with the growing church. So he goes and gets Saul. A man who was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. A man who could speak to diverse groups and together that says that they taught large numbers. Now, more than anything, what Christians need, especially new Christians need, is to know the Scriptures and to learn how to apply the Scriptures. Amen? Guys, that's not, that's not solely my responsibility. That's partly my responsibility and I need to help equip you to equip others. But largely, you can open the Scriptures for people and say, hey, here's Matthew 5. We call this the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It goes through chapter 7. And in this are so many things about how you ought to live your life. Let's walk through some of these things together and see what it says. Like Any of us can do that. Any of us who have a desire to know the Lord and to help others know the Lord can be used to make disciples. This is part of what we're here for. I think each of us needs faithful instruction and we need to be giving faithful instruction at some point. Amen? Passing things along that we've learned from others. We see that all this resulted in the followers growing in their number and I suspect also in their maturity. <laughs> They're growing in the Lord. Their community was so different from everything else in the area that it demanded a new name. That people looked on, outsiders looked on this new culture of people and they're like, well, they're not Jews because, well, they can't be Jews. They're Gentiles. And they're not like 
any kind of other spiritual thing we've ever known. They don't look anything like that. And, and, and they're proclaiming the name Christ and Jesus Christ specifically, and they're teaching people the good news. It's like, they're, they're little Christ. They're Christians. Like they had to be given a new name because the community was so radically different from anything else in the area. There was no other label for them. We couldn't just call them religious. We couldn't just call them people of faith. It's like, those are, those are little, little Christ. <laughs> it was like a, a new humanity, right? It was, a, it was a peek into what heaven will be like, especially as diverse as it was. These people of different ethnicities and different backgrounds and different, really everything, displayed unique values that matched. They displayed like a unique way of life and they're living the same way and following the same instruction and seeking to proclaim the same name and they're preaching a unique message. All of it was very unique, but it was embodied by so many different people. This is what the Gospel does. What do you think makes such a diverse group of people come together? Well, I think it's the single-minded focus of the teachers. I think it's the single-minded focus of the Gospel message. I think they preached and taught the Gospel of Jesus. And they saw themselves, these teachers did, Saul and Barnabas saw themselves, and these men of Cyrene and Cyprus saw themselves as people who were sinners, saved by God's grace, alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And there is no ground for superiority or elitism in the church, in the body. We don't look at someone else and say, well, they're a little lower, right? Like they're. This is why the body references in Corinthians and Romans are so helpful. Like Paul talks about, you, you can't say as a hand to the foot, we don't need you. Can you imagine looking at your feet and just saying, I don't really need you. I kind of need my feet. Can you imagine looking at any other part of your body and saying, I don't, I don't need you. Like the Lord has wired us this way. He's created this this way because this is the way the body is supposed to function. Well, the same is true for the body of Christ. I might be called to be a pastor and to lead in that way, but so many of you in here, all of you, are gifted in ways that I'm not gifted. And you can serve the body in ways I'll never be able to serve the body. And part of my role is helping equip you to do just that. I won't say just my role. That's what we do as elders. Our elder team. And so it's amazing the way the Lord brings so much diversity together. Diverse backgrounds and histories and Likes and dislikes and interest and non-interest, right? And just things that were like, you would look at us and say, man, those people could never get along. And yet here we are, proclaiming the name of Jesus together, reconciled together because of the blood of Christ, working to proclaim Him to the ends of the earth. Christ's followers are all about Christ not themselves. So, 
this leads into kind of a couple of things, like I mentioned earlier, they're really like fruit of discipleship, okay? But I've listed them as separate things. The first is acts of mercy. There's this really amazing situation here where this guy named Agabus, a prophet, comes down from, uh, I think it says the north, and um, came, sorry, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So he actually came up. And one of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples then, according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And so chapter 11 really just kind of closes with this glimpse into how the gospel had begun to transform them. They're, they're looking out for now the larger body. Brothers and sisters are going to be in need in Judea, we're going to send relief. I love that we see a selflessness here, right? They didn't, the, the famine was going to affect the Roman world, of which they were a part of. But maybe the greater effects were going to be in Judea. And so they said, let's send help. Even though it's going to affect us, let's give of what we can according to our own ability, it says. And so they sent help. They were selfless in that. We also see a, a generosity. Acts of mercy are marked by generosity. They didn't, they didn't ask how much. It just says they gave as much as they were able. It's not like, hey, how much do we need to give? Right? How much is enough? You know, is it going to be that 10% thing? Or is it going to be more? Like we really need to know. <laughs> they just said, no, we're going to determine in our hearts according to the ability that we have, according to what God's leading us to do, we're going to give. It's very 2 Corinthians 8, 9-ish of them, right? To give with generous, cheerful hearts. How dare they? <laughs> I love Philippians 2, where Paul writes, and he talks about how we should consider others above ourselves. He says, consider others as more valuable than yourself. Now one, that's really stinking difficult. Then he says, you can do this because you have this mind in you which is from Jesus Christ who gave of Himself. He literally laid aside the weights, and not the weights, sorry, He laid aside everything in heaven that He had to be grasped, to be held onto, and He gave it up and He came to earth to give His life. Counted us as more valuable than His own life. That's your mind in Christ Jesus. That's my mind in Christ Jesus. It's able to count others as more valuable than ourselves. And it ought to count others as more valuable than ourselves. This is what Christians do. <laughs> it was corporate. We, we see that they were mindful of other brothers and sisters and they said, hey, let's together, let's do this. There was a corporate effort in this act of mercy because of their fellow belief in Christ. So Barnabas and Saul deliver it and they come back at some point. doesn't really make it clear. We just know that they're back in chapter 13. And that's where I want to pick up with you now in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. 
So the Antioch church displayed a desire to continue the mission which came to them. And I think this is a mark of, of like a good local church, right? Is that we have a desire to continue the mission which has so affected our lives. That we're, that we're going to keep it going. We're going to pay it forward to use kind of a modern day term, right? And so they continue the mission, but they do it by sending missionaries into the rest of the world to reach others for Jesus. So like we need to send people out. Like people need to go and teach the gospel. And I think this teaches us three things about this missional mindset that we can adopt. One is worship and expectant prayer fueled the mission. It was a heart that these believers had to be worshiping the Lord, to be expectantly praying for the Lord to use them. These believers were worshiping. They were a praying church. Their fasting indicates that they had decided to spend time in prayer and, and with expectancy, like deep dependence on God. All right? when, you, when you say, I'm not going to eat for a while, what you're saying is, I'm going I'm to lay aside my, my physical well-being, the nourishment of my physical self to be nourished spiritually, to be led spiritually. I think a point that really challenged me in this was we see the way the leaders acted. The way these, these prophets and teachers were. I think one thing we see is that true spiritual leaders do not run with their own ideas. Like, I've got a lot of really, what I think are awesome ideas. <laughs> the elders are often telling me, no, that's not a good idea. But, so praise God for them. But I've got a lot of really good ideas, right? I, I think we could, the elders and I could sit in a room and we could come up with some good ideas. We've probably been guilty of doing this. And we, and we could never consider the Lord in prayer. We could never ask for the Lord's help. We could never, like, appeal to the Lord or to the Scriptures at all, really. And just say, hey, yeah, let's do that. It sounds great. Would you want to be a part of a church that was led that way? You can answer that. Okay, I, I would like for you to answer that. I hope my heart feel a little better about you. <laughs> no, right? No. You don't want to be a part of a church where people, the leaders are just getting together and saying, well, here's God's Word. Let's just kind of toss it over the side and... Uh, there's a prayer list, and we ask people to submit prayer requests, but we're just not going to deal with those today. That'd be pretty miserable. And then about the direction of the church, like, we're not going to pray for future leaders, we're not going to pray for how can we be better equipping people, we're just going to kind of get by. That's what I love about this. Like, these guys said, we're not running with our own ideas. We're going to seek God in dependent prayer. We'll seek the Lord. And we're going to ask Him what He wants us to be. Now, I will admit, we're working with a little more than they had. I've got the examples of the New Testament church and how it's supposed to be governed and ran and, and things they did and prioritized, right? We've got that. But still, we should be a, a church, we should be a leadership team who is prayerful. New life. I want you to know, like, if we're going to impact the world, it's got to start here. And we've got to start by exalting Jesus passionately. 
we got to start by seeking Him in prayer dependently and expectantly. Like, Lord, we can do nothing without You, expresses dependence. So we're going to pray that You would give us direction and wisdom because Your Word says that if we'll pray for those things, You'll grant it. That's expectancy. And trust that the Lord will lead us. Amen? And you can do that in your home and in your life and in your ministry and whatever it is the Lord's calling you to. I love, too, that the church and the Spirit together affirm it. I love the way that God uses the Spirit in the congregation there to like affirm the mission. Like Saul doesn't stand up and say, well, guys, God told me it's time for me to go to Spain, so sayonara. Like, I, I think that's really dangerous vocabulary. And I love that Saul doesn't do that. I love that Barnabas doesn't stand up and say, it's time for us to, to be gone. We've, we've done our work here. In fact, all they really know is that the Lord's going to send them. They don't even know to where yet. But the church affirmed it. They all knew that this is what's got to happen. We're going to send these two men to go. Now that would have cost them something, right? I imagine Saul and Barnabas were probably pretty potent leaders in their church. They'd learned a lot from them. But they knew the mission had to go on. And so they relied on prayer. They relied on the Spirit. The Spirit gave the Word. The church affirms the mission. I love this. We see that the church sent their best on the mission, which is what I said a minute ago. But what I want to add here is that I think as a church, we should pray for the Lord to use us in efforts to take the gospel to Magnolia and Columbia County and Arkansas, and the United States, and then abroad, internationally, right? Like, how might the Lord use us for those efforts? I think one is we need to support missionaries, like we do already. Support mission work, ministry work, as we're trying to do already. But I think another would be, let's pray that the Lord would raise up people in our congregation who say, I'm called to do mission work. And the church could affirm that in them. Be like, yeah, I've, I've known her for a really long time. I, I know she's called her. I've known him for a really long time. I know he's called. The church could rally around and sin. I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. And I think we pray that the Lord allows us to do that so that we can happily send people, we can happily support people, we can happily go about in our jobs and in our homes and in our schools and, and everywhere that we find ourselves, taking the gospel to those places. Amen? So, when the good news, good news of the Lord, good news, when the good news of the Lord Jesus affects hearts, it transforms them into new creations who care about evangelism and discipleship and acts of mercy and living with this missional mindset, wanting to continue the mission in their lives. In other words, when we understand that the Creator of the universe intervened in our sinfulness, our lostness, our deadness, to put it really blunt, 
And He did this by sending His own Son into the world to live perfectly, fulfilling the law of God which had to be met, to die sacrificially, displaying the mercy and love of God, and to rise from the dead and reign forever in heaven, showing the Lordship of Jesus over all creation and over all of Satan and his enemies, so that all who call on Jesus' name by faith will be saved. From their sins, saved from eternal punishment in hell, and given eternal life with Jesus in heaven. When we understand those things, our individualism individualism dies. I'm no longer concerned about me. I'm concerned about you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And all those out there who aren't in here and aren't concerned about the Lord at all. Content to sleep. Content to grocery shop while all the Christians are at church. Content to do whatever their heart finds in it to do. But certainly not content in the way that we know contentment. And peace. And the way that we would want for them to know contentment and peace. May the Lord use us to understand His kindness, His mercy, His grace, His love, so that you and I become more like Him. Amen? May He make us understand those things so that we can engage and transform the culture around us, the world around us, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Would you stand to your feet this morning?